The question today is if the class system, is the class system back and is it getting stronger? So my panellists are in order. Judith Sloan, who's a contributing economics editor to The Australian. She's held numerous commercial directorships and has served as a commissioner on the Productivity Commission and the commissioner for The Australian Fair Pay Commission. Welcome to Judith. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sitting next to Judith is Mark Carnegie. He's the Managing Director of MH Carnegie & Co and has over 30 years of experience as an entrepreneur, investor <coughs> and corporate advisor. Welcome to Mark. And our other Mark on the far left is an Australian writer, essayist and former politician. <coughs> He's the author of Not Dead Yet, Australia's Post-Left Future, and the now out in uh, bookstores and can be bought after this session, uh, his book, The Political Bubble, Why Australians Don't Trust Politics. Welcome to Mark. Now, uh, a couple of months ago, novelist Tim Winton wrote an essay on class in the monthly, and he made the following comment. Anyone reckless enough to declare class a live issue is likely to be met with howls of derision. Any mention of structural social inequality is tantamount to a declaration of class warfare. Concerns about the distribution of wealth, education and health are difficult to raise in a public forum without needing to beat off the ghost of Stalin. I wanted to ask, so are we beating off the ghosts of Stalin today? I'm interested in getting every panel member to respond to that, and I might start with you, Judith. Um, well, actually, I, I think I fundamentally disagree with Tim Winton in the sense that I think that the issue of inequality, income inequality, and also the issue of equality of opportunity is a live debate, and I don't think people are scared of talking about it. Um, I think the thing is that I don't particularly like the framework of class. I think the thing is that at any point in time, obviously, um, you know, the income di distribution is uh, uh, distributed in a particular way and there are people up the top and people in the middle and people down the bottom. The really interesting issue is social mobility and whether people can come from, you know, the, the, the bottom 20% of the income distribution to the top or the second top and the like. So I, I'd like to frame this debate in terms of what are the factors that encourage social mobility and what are the factors that impede it? Mark Carnegie, what's your view? Do you think that class is something that you know, should be left in textbooks from the 1970s or do you think that we can still talk about issues of... No, um, I, I mean, I think class gets you a headline out there in the world at the moment and discussion about equality of opportunity doesn't. And so we end up in a situation where that's the way to get the headline. You claim that somebody's engaged in class warfare, that gets you a headline. The idea that we're gonna somehow reintroduce the class system in Australia or find it emerge, that's a headline. But the real issue in terms of the functioning of the economy is the ladders of opportunity that Mark talks about. Um, and making sure that those are functional and that a couple of steps on the ladder don't rust or a couple of steps on the ladder don't get knocked out by somebody making a mess of an education system. 
Mark Latham, I, re I recall when you were uh, leader of the opposition, some of the times you would suggest a policy change. So, for example, in terms of funding to education, was described as class warfare. What's your view about our ability to discuss about class or the relevance of class language anymore in politics? Uh, well, in the political system, accusing someone of class warfare is just a tactic to um, scare people and, and make them think that the other groups will be uh, subject to funding redistribution and the like. So I think the political tactic is one thing, but um, I've always thought that Australia is a class-structured society and that in the 70s we had ruling class, middle class, working class, but the success of the economic program and reforms in the 80s and 90s mean that we've still got a remnant ruling class, not as powerful as they used to be because of um, the really big change and that is the expansion of the Australian middle class, um, massive increase in income levels and wealth, better educated society, more self-reliant people which is a very, very positive development, not only for them, but the country. And what we've seen is the disappearance of what used to be known as the Australian working class, and at the bottom of society now, it's more an underclass, people who aren't working, and for two or three, maybe four generations, no one in the family's had a job. And the uh, issues of disadvantage go beyond finance and economics into a whole set of social norms and social values. So I think of society now as uh, a, struggle, well, a less powerful ruling class, a much expanded middle class, and 10% underclass, uh, people who've missed out on the benefits of globalisation. I want to talk about this, uh, this expanded middle class. In the research I do as a social researcher, it, pretty much everybody describes themselves as middle class, but of course that can vary hugely in terms of uh, you know, their income, their uh, employment, profile, their ability to be able to do things basically like fund their retirement. Has that expansion of the middle class and people's identification with it, is that in itself a problem? Does it kind of mean that we can't talk effectively about social inequality because everybody considers themselves to be oh, middle I know, class? you can talk about it, but you've got to talk about it in a realistic fashion when out in the southwest of Sydney where I live, uh, rockers are earning $150,000 a year, uh, electricians are uh, doing about the same, and, and you read of uh, coal miners in the Hunter Valley, well, up in the 100,000 per annum. Um, you're not talking of traditional working class here. People can hold those values, and they probably talk the same about uh, football and family and life, but their economic reality has changed so dramatically, and with the deregulation of the, the finance system, people have got better access to capital. With that sort of money behind them, earning capacity, they can set up their own small business, most of them have and you've got a different set of economic values and aspirations. We can talk about that, but it's, it, it, I think we're essentially talking about an Australian success story. But um, um, you've got to talk about it in a fashion that, that is real. It's no good sticking to the old dogma of left or right. There's a new Australia out there that needs to be understood and, and described. Judith? What's your response to Mark's uh, characterisation there? Well, I guess it doesn't uh, kind of make good theatre that we seem to be in heated agreement at this point, but maybe, no, no, no. maybe it'll move <laughs> along to a bit of dispute. But, I mean, I think the thing is partly what you're saying is that, you know, the old manufacturing model and the like, um, it, it actually generated quite a lot of low-skill, um, you know, relatively low income, but regulated wage income. Uh, and, and that pretty much has disappeared. So the return is to skills, 
the return is to effort, and the return is, of course, to a bit of luck, you know, because you can be in segments uh, which uh, have uh, uh, prospered greatly, and so people have done quite well. I, I, I think, you know, I, I, uh, and maybe this is a bit more controversial. I think there's a lot of discussion about the top 1% um, and not enough... What, what kind of discussion about the top Well, particularly 1%? overseas, and we've had... Uh, oh, overseas. You know, Piketty's working. I mean, you know, I'm a kind of facts and figures kind of girl. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is that by international comparisons, Australia looks like a pretty equal place. So... Um, you know, for example, the top 1% of income earners account for about 7.5% of total income. In America, that's 20%. You know, that's like a really big difference. Do you think there's been as much discussion in Australia about the top 1%? It's been very politicised. It's been very talked about in, the, for example, the United States in the wake of the GFC. But do well, we talk about it as much? Well, I hope we don't. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was talking to Mark uh, Carnegie about this, so I had a look at the top 200 richest people, you know, the magazine puts that list out every year, and less than a third of those people actually come from wealthy backgrounds, come from wealthy families. And of course, you will know people from wealthy backgrounds who don't do well and don't stay rich, I might add. So the idea, which was partly Piketty's idea, that wealth begets wealth, and if you're not wealthy in the first instance, forget it. That doesn't seem to be true in Australia. Okay, I do want to get back to that idea about Australia being reasonably egalitarian compared to international standards, but I want to ask Mark Carnegie this question. Um, this was quite, you know, this got a lot of media when he said it. Warren Buffett recently said, actually, there's been class warfare going on for the last 20 years, and my class has won. <laughs> well, and he went on really to talk about the dramatic reduction of tax rates, of the, um, of the disparity between, you know, the, the very wealthy and even the well-off in America, the kind of shrinking of the middle class and the growth of what's described as the working poor. Now, of course, that's America, that's not here, but I, I was interested to get your response to that. So, well, I think two things. Australia refuses to ever look at itself on the basis that it's done anything better than the rest of the world. And yet, if you look at, you know, in a boxing sense, the difference between Australia having a left-right combination from the early 1980s and Britain and the US having what was essentially a right-left combination, we've ended up with a completely different structure in terms of the regulatory reform agenda as a consequence of the policy settings being set by the left in Hawke-Keating and then finding the right combination with the Howard Battlers and all of that coming in compared to Thatcher and Reagan and then finding Blair and Clinton. It's just set us up differently to that. I think the danger in terms of the war... And the second thing is that the obscenity of the carried interest deduction um, in the US, the idea that, as Buffett talks about, rich people can end up paying 15% tax in the United States and because they're able to essentially claim their ordinary income is capital, on capital account is just ridiculous. But the part that I think we haven't had as a nation a sensible conversation about, and I still can't understand this, which is explain to me what the structural rationale is for concessionary rates of tax on capital as opposed to income. It just, it's illogical. When you look at profit share of GDP being at 
you know, unprecedented rates for capital. Why is it that the society wants to do that? I don't get it. I don't get how the average working man and woman who's paying 50% marginal rate on their overtime sits there and says, absolutely, I'm going to make that deal. I can understand it when we didn't have capital and stuff like that, but I can't understand how that's the same thing now. Judith, what's your response to that? Um, <laughs> well, of course, uh, you know, when we don't want to get too technical here yeah. because, of course, you know, it's probably better not to have any tax on capital at all, you know, uh, as the, the truth be known, because effectively it, it, it all ends up, you know, uh, uh, being borne yeah, by some other party. But, look... I, I guess the general point is this, and I think that really is true in America, but there are issues here, that there are all sorts of anomalies in the um, tax and indeed the transfer arrangements, which sort of shoot off all sorts of funny implications. So some people get obscenely wealthy. I mean, you know, the, the audience may not agree with me, but I'm happy for someone to get wealthy through hard work, entrepreneurship, risk-taking, um, education and training. That's fine by me. That's the kind of society we want. I don't want people to get wealthy through monopolies, through racketeering, through rent-seeking, through working regulations or working um, tax codes to their advantage. So that's, I think, a really important part of the discussion. So it's how people become rich. It's how people, um, you know, get themselves out of a, a, a sticky situation and improve their lot that's really interesting. And there are definitely some ways which are very um, uh, un, uh, unsatisfactory from society's point of view, and a lot of them are the fault of policymakers. Uh, but, Mark, are there, I'm sorry, but just, Judith, do you see anybody, any of the very wealthy in Australia... Would you say that all of them have, have uh, achieved their levels of success through this great hard work ethic and entrepreneurism? Um, can you single out anybody? Well, I've got to say, you've got yeah. to say Twiggy. Yeah. Yeah. And Twiggy Forrest, yeah. yeah. Well, I go back to the point, the you know, that... a lot of them haven't started with, with wealth themselves. Cannon Brooks uh, and all of those guys. That, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, There's... the ones I've got in the gun, and you may not agree with me, are the people in the financial services yeah. industry who no, no, I, I think are basically, um, you know, high rent yep. uh, feeders uh, who are essentially intermediates in the economy. So I'm really interested in people who really do things and invest yeah. and create new enterprises. Financial services yeah. leaves me a bit cold. No, no, and it. I think also having socialised the losses <clears throat> and subsidised the sector as extraordinarily as people have. I mean, I think this is exactly the problem about class, which is when you get a group of people, and I know we've got to jump to Mark, to this discussion. Mark will jump in any moment, I can um, feel it. You the problem waters. you've got here is you very quickly come to debates about tax policy, yeah. right? And that's the moment where everyone goes to sleep and starts watching <laughs> everything else. And so fundamental debates about the tax on capital versus income, which I would have with Judith um, mm -hmm. profoundly, just bore people. It's the same as the tax summit and all of that. But, so that, but that being said, even though they might be across the detail, I'm telling you in the research we find there is a perception that the tax system uh, isn't necessarily one in which, um, you know, people who are working hard are rewarded. Yeah, but, in the but hold on a second. Class. They went and voted against the mining tax, right? Well, they vent, they, it, any sort of restructuring of the GST wasn't even within the framework of the Henry Tax Commission. 
any discussion about land tax or any of the things that you could have done to rationalise it. Any of that conversation, the answer was, if you sit there and go and tell people, cut the debt, axe the tax, that's what gets you home. So whatever they said, that wasn't the way they voted. I, 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 well, we could, we could go on about, because that's about the reasons why that last election was lost, but Mark's being uncharacteristically quiet. <laughs> I would like to get you to respond, perhaps not to the, to, I mean, interesting to the, to the Buffett comment about whether you think that relates to Australia at all, but to what Judith and Mark have said about the tax system. Um, well, on the Buffett comment, um, I don't think there's evidence in Australia that the, the, the ruling class have won in that uh, we've had this massive expansion of middle class opportunity and I suppose from my point of view in assessing the quality of society, I'm more interested in the people who are permanently missing out on decent opportunities than those who might notionally be at the top of the income tree because it's also true that money doesn't necessarily give you the good life. Um, I was struck recently by James Packer's comments that uh, he's had enormous financial success in recent times, but he's, his private life is crap, or worse to that effect. He's still got Miranda Kerr to like him. I mean, and, I'm really and, sorry, not. I'm really not that sorry for him. Are we sure Well, there's, there's more to life than, than money, and a successful life and happiness is, is founded on personal relationships and love and family and support and a lot of things that go beyond economics. And you'd have to judge that Australia um, as a society is a lot stronger and more successful on all fronts than it was 30 years ago. What worries me most is the unique Australian circumstance of a fairly significant 10% underclass who are locked in permanent poverty. Why are we unique? Well, we've done two things that you won't find in Europe. One is the dispossession of Indigenous Australians and the whole... Um, process of disadvantage there. And the other thing we did that was such a poor uh, government decision in the 60s and 70s was constructing broadacre public housing estates uh, on the outskirts of our cities, whether you're talking about uh, Western Sydney or places like Elizabeth in Judith's uh, hometown of Adelaide. Uh, those manufacturing jobs, the, the original idea was broadacre public housing to service manufacturing plants. Uh, a lot of those uh, plants have closed down or shed labour because of economic change, but the, the housing stock is there without jobs that pass from generation to generation. You've got an entrenchment of disadvantage in Australia that for the bottom 10% still makes us a fundamentally unfair society. And the sadness, you know, rhetoric about the fair go and Australia's reputation of egalitarianism, we don't have enough political focus or national debate about this... Uh, a slow-burning crisis of underclass. I was going to ask you that because, I mean, the Australian Labor Party has long been the champion of the working class. Have they failed this underclass to oh, be well, an effective This is an interesting issue. Uh, for them. There is no working class left in Australia, yeah. and it's an identity and purpose question for, for the ALP in that, uh, you know, dominated in many cases by union-sponsored uh, factionalism. Um, you know, they're, they're living on a memory of a, a, a large viable working-class population in this country that we haven't got now in substance. And the real equity issues are people who don't belong to trade unions. In fact, they haven't got a job. Uh, they don't go to political meetings. They don't belong to Eddie O'Bead's faction or Ian McDonald's faction in the Labor Party. They're, they're um, third and fourth generation unemployed, welfare-dependent people, either in Indigenous communities where there are no jobs or in outer suburban areas where that type of work that they're grandparents had relied on has disappeared. So that's the big equity issue. 
And unfortunately, in, 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 in Labor's organisational structure, it's not something that's front and centre. Mark Carnegie, your, your view about this, you know, this entrenched underclass and what to do about it, um, they're not, you know, then then it's it's probably un, it's probably an unattractive or difficult thing as a politician to be their champion. I mean, what do you think can be done? Well, and what do you think the role necessarily of the of the top one percent should be in relation to that bottom ten percent? Well, so the problem is there are votes in discussions about rights there are no votes in discussions about obligations and engagement. So when you try and figure out how to start dealing with those incredibly, incredibly difficult cycles of dependency and sociological cascades and all of those things, when you do the, talk to the people who are actually engaged, you have a horrendous on-the-ground problem about invading people's rights to get an economic outcome. So if you talk to Noel about what it, Noel Pearson about what it actually takes to get three, four, five, six, seven, eight-year-old kids to be able to read and write, he's got the answer, everyone's got the answer in terms of what you teach them in the school. But the question is, are you going to let what is essentially a white person in almost all circumstances trespass in the house of the parents to actually get the kid out of the house and to school in the morning. Now, what politician possibly wants to talk about that? What politician wants to talk about the fact that for a whole group of people, the truth is the father takes all the welfare and drinks it or spends it, you know, at the tab? before it ever gets. Who wants to actually sit there and say income management is absolutely central to getting people out of these cycles of dependency? Who wants to talk about anything to do with making sure that you stop at three kids in those things? Any of those discussions have to be kryptonite for anybody who's trying to get elected or anybody who's a rich, entitled white prick as well. You know, it's just... What, you like know, you? Yeah, <laughs> like me. <laughs> You know, it's why I don't want to go anywhere near it, because what do you do at the top? You know, you look at Twig in the whole income management, and the answer is you can't deal with it. So somebody's got to figure out what to do. And then you go and look at the people who sort of cluster around those communities, the broken, parasitic white people who find some way to sort of take a huge amount of the money that the rest of society finds to try and deal with this. We can't have a national open and honest debate about it because any of the solutions are just completely politically unacceptable and... But where are the jobs? I mean, I hear the rhetoric from Noel Pearson and others about uh, teaching the eight, nine-year-olds how to read and write. Fantastic. Um, I hope it happens. And uh, it made, the rhetoric we, about income management so for getting... Two million bucks, and, oh, no, I tell you, right? So it's really, really hard. We're putting two million bucks into a timber mill up there. It's gonna produce a fraction of the jobs of anything that you could see, but there will be eight jobs to start and maybe there's 200 or something like that. But 
you know what's going to happen there if you actually try and make a timber industry competitive, right? Even when you've got free capital or any of those things, the regulatory constraints on it and the occupational health and safety and all of this other crap of regulation that you guys have hung around everybody's neck make it absolutely impossible to go and do it. There's tons of jobs up there if you could find some way to reduce the regulatory burden. Well, I don't know about that. I've visited uh, remote Indigenous communities and always walked away thinking, Bill Gates couldn't turn a dollar here. There's just nothing. And the, the truth of and Australia's mate, economic not true. You go and success look at, story. Well, you go and look at, out of Weeper, with Rio reclaiming the land from the bauxite mine, you could find some way to build a perfectly effective palm oil you know, competitive palm oil business up there. Yes, it'd have a hundredth of the jobs that the palm oil business would have in Indonesia, but you could have a functioning thing up there if you didn't have all the regulatory burdens. Yeah, but Mark, we keep hearing the promise of all these jobs and... Mate, it's hard, mate. I know it's What's your solution, well, mate? I mean, you've identified I, we're I down to the 10%. Well, my solution is to finish my sentence <laughs> in the first instance. <laughs> and then to point out that, 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 that I visited Noel Pearson's community there. He had 20 jobs in the Moscow and Gorge Tourism Centre. And talk of subsidising industries, there's never been an industry that's been subsidised yep. into success. These are areas which, for historic reasons, Indigenous populations Mate, have been what located. about health and medical research in Australia? That's been subsidised to huge success. Go and look at McEwen's report in terms of the social return on investment in health in Australia. It's incredibly... The problem is, all the Labor Party's done is subsidise these sinking ships and these sunset industries as opposed to sunrise. McEwen's, you know, out there and showing just how much we've got out of health and medical research in terms of return on jobs. Judith, I might let you... Um, uh, well, you're not going to get that research, health and research centres in the Mossman Gorge. You're dreaming. <laughs> you're dreaming. Um, it's just your unrealistic. Views about, your views about what um, Mark Carnegie in particular was saying in relation to... <laughs> Look, you know, I think there is a broader point, and that is this, that actually Australia does a pretty good job in using the transfer system to distribute money. Right? So if you look at Australia by comparison with a lot of other countries, we give very little to the top in terms of transfers, and we do distribute a lot to um, lower income earners. But I guess it's picking up, and I really hate to feel that I might have agreed with Mark Latham on another point, but this is not just about money. It really is not just about money. And in fact, it's partly actually with the way the money is structured that, you know, there is a withdrawal of benefits, there's a withdrawal of net income when people work more. And, 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 you know, that is, I think, a real problem for people because they sort of make that comparison. But one of the things that really worries me is the sort of what I call the intergenerational transmission of disadvantage, that... Um, you know, seeing your parents get up in the morning and get organised and get off to work and, and the like, that, that, that it's not necessarily about money. That's sort of providing a role model for children. A lot of these children are being brought up in environments where, um, you know, there is really a high degree of idleness. Um, and, I, I, you know, I, I did live in Adelaide for many years. I, was, I remembered that... Um, there was a program where in the northern schools, in the northern suburbs, they introduced a breakfast program. Now, uh, it, it turned out that a lot of the children were going to school without breakfast and the teachers were worried, and I can understand that. But it's interesting that the Salvation Army at the time was very opposed to this because their point was this, that 
to the extent that the government or outside agencies take on the responsibility of parents, those parents will withdraw from those areas and it basically is a sort of slippery slide. So uh, I'm really, I mean, I don't know what the answer is. I think, you know, clearly there are kids that manage to escape and and, you know, good schools, I think, probably is part of the solution. Interesting enough, the research shows, and this is your point, uh, um, the other mark, which is that um, truancy for children from disadvantaged backgrounds really has a very negative impact on their school performance. For, you know, rich people like you, Mark, you know, you can take your kids off skiing and it doesn't matter much, but, you know... Um, <laughs> For children from disadvantaged background, the more they miss school, the disproportionate decline in their school performance. So, but then that kind of is difficult. So what, you employ truancy officers who go around and knock on people's doors. So I think there is this kind of essential conflict between us kind of understanding some of the problems, but kind of feeling too sort of liberal to want to interfere, you know, so I think we're kind of at that stage. Uh, it would be remiss of me in a discussion about the return of the class system not to talk about the political and public debate after this last budget. So we've been hearing about uh, rolled gold paid parental leave schemes and, you know, wealthy female lawyers kind of, you know, taking huge amounts of money from the government to have their babies. On the other end, we've been hearing about the uh, transport uh, preferences of poor people. Uh, I wanted to ask. I wanted to I ask each of preference you, would be preferences quite the right word. habits and behaviours. I wanted to ask each of you to reflect on the discussion post the budget, and what does it really say about how the politics of of class is playing out in politics at the moment? I might start with you, Mark Latham. Uh, well, I think the problem with the budget was twofold. The broken promises uh, generated a lot of uh, outrage about um, political distrust and the democratic deficit. But on the substance of the economics, uh, there's a, a remoteness, uh, an ignorance about the true nature of underclass in Australia. And it's best reflected by Joe Hockey saying that uh, poor people don't own cars. Well, they own older cars, gas guzzlers, mm -hmm. And, and often in the outer suburbs have to drive longer journeys to do X, Y, Z, and, and there is an impact there when you increase uh, petrol tax. So one of the problems uh, with the, the entrenched poverty in Australia is that uh, not enough MPs are familiar with the detail of it. And these areas tend to be lost. Their voting power is sort of taken for granted. Um, they're not politically active themselves. They're obviously not in the media. They're not a lobby group. Um, they're and not, and uh, so their voting power is taken for granted primarily by the Labor Party. Well, it used to be, yeah. 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 And um, there's an apathy there about politics yeah. where, uh, you know, if you're door knocking through different suburbs, it's, it's a better quality of work to go door knock in the middle class areas where you get a bit more responsiveness than uh, a much harder slog in a public housing estate. But, you know, I, I remember... Um, when was this, late 90s, I was on the sort of self-imposed exile on the Labor Party backbench under Kim Beasley, working away on different local projects, and Tony Abbott was the Employment Services Minister. And um, um, he came out to look at one of the, I got him out there because the, the Catholic nuns were running a laundry service and he was drawn to this to offer a, uh, 
a bit of government support. And he, he came to the um, Claymore public housing estate and said to me, I never knew areas like this existed. Now, to Abbott's credit, he has gone out of his way with Noel Pearson and my project to educate himself. But if you come from that background and represent a seat up uh, manly there with the biggest issues, you know, how's the surf breaking, um, <laughs> then, and, and Mossman and these type of places, well, you're not going to be familiar in your own personal background, your own parliamentary duties with the nature. So the first step is to go out of your way. Uh, Abbott has said as Prime Minister, he'll serve a week in Indigenous communities. We should have all parliamentarians, if, if they haven't got these areas in their own electorate, getting out and living a week in a public housing estate or an Indigenous community. Abbott has set a good lead there and I hope it, it, it at least makes people familiar with the problem and in Joe Hockey's case, get out there and uh, drive a, a big uh, 85 Valiant around <laughs> and, uh, and understand how much petrol it uses. I, I mean, I don't think just Indigenous communities, I always used to... Um, have a laugh when you used to say you were the boy from Green Valley and because I'm not from Sydney, I think it sounds quite nice. Yeah, it did. <laughs> Promotional thing, it lured us all out there. <laughs> Mark, Mark Carnegie, you Then you found out they'd not only taken all the trees down, they'd knocked off all the topsoil <laughs> but for I developments think, elsewhere. I think you have There's a very, green about it. very strong point, not that this has by and large been the policy mistake of the Commonwealth Government, but I know these housing estates and Bob... Gregory's done some important research about this, that there's really serious economic and labour market disadvantage clustered around uh, these public housing estates. And I know in Adelaide, they used to sort of cunningly locate them away from any public transport network. So if you didn't have a car, you didn't have a chance. Um, so I think a lot of mistakes have been made, but the interesting thing is it's taking a very long time to unwind those kinds of mistakes because, mm. well, certainly in Melbourne, you know, they're not doing anything about the public housing flats, for example. They still exist. Um, and, you know, I don't think they've kind of got with the idea that there is actually a very important geographic dimension to inequality. And as you say, people who live in sort of inner leafy uh, or even trendy suburbs really have no idea what it's like to see the kind of intergenerational uh, entrenchment of disadvantage because they never go there. Mark Carnegie, back to, back to talking about the budget. One of the, one of the critiques of the budget was that uh, it would in further entrench inequalities that exists to the extent that it exists in Australia today and that the burden of uh, the budget was not kind of evenly spread. Uh, your views just generally about the discussion post-budget? So, I mean, one thing I wanted to say about the budget, and I think it goes to the subject of the conversation today, is you can hear three people very quickly not talking about the return of the class system so much as the emergence of the class, the excluded class. And... What I think happened in terms of the response to the budget is that people just don't like, and understandably so, this idea that what was meant to be a political document ended up being virtually a religious document that had at its core this idea that the poor must suffer. That that's what just got everybody, which is make them suffer. This is an immensely complicated thing. If you buy the argument of three panellists who 
I don't feel like anybody thinks are all in a narrow point on the Australian political spectrum, that the, everyone understands that there are 10 or 15% of people who are the excluded class. And whether it's the right, the centre or the left, the people outside politics understand that trying to find some way to engage that group of people who have been left behind in Australia is absolutely core. And I think what happened was everybody turned around and said, in this society where most of us have done so extraordinarily well over the last 25 or 35 years, just something targeted at, hey, if we just get them to suffer, it'll be okay, is what sent everybody wild. Yeah. But don't you think, though, in many ways it was, and, you know, don't, you know, come on, we've got a debt and deficit problem, even the Labor Party accept that in the medium term, but it was the mixed messaging. I, I mean, won't I've, buy I've, that. Oh, by I've, the way, we can have a row about I've that. I've never been in favour of the paid parental leave scheme. I mean, it's absolutely the dopiest idea that you would spend $5.5 billion on a really select group of women. You know, we're talking about maybe 150,000 women, a lot of uh, whom uh, are pretty well paid already. Uh, you'll crowd out uh, employers paying this uh, benefit f to probably about 50% of it. Absolute madness, you know? So um, we, need a, a, we need some consistency in philosophy about government spending being directed to those who find it hardest to look after themselves, we don't spend it on senior associates from one of the big law firms. Right, we... <clears throat> I might now ask for the house lights to be turned up because there's an opportunity for uh, some questions from the audience. Uh, there is a roving, or I think there are standing mics. There's one over there and one over there. And there's also one up there and one up there. So one, two, Three, four, so I, I will just say number four or number three. Uh, no questions. There's always, always, oh no, no, here's a few people. It's so always the first that's hard. Somebody has to break the ice. This young lady at number one. Hi. I haven't heard any discussion about the inequalities that are really built into the system. So a friend of mine, for example, works with job seekers. And for agencies trying to help these individuals, there is an incentive to keep these people out of work for more than two years because then they get paid more. That's the way the system has been built. What about those kinds of inequalities that are being built into the system? If you're going to talk about an underclass, let's talk about some of the environmental things that are happening to keep these people at an underclass. And I don't see policies addressing those. Mm. Who'd like to respond to that? You're the labour market expert. Oh, I see. I'm the expert. It's fair, I'm the expert. You are a labour um, market economist. I think you're right. I mean, look, I think there are some detail. There is... I mean, you know, sometimes I wish I hadn't become an economist because I think economists are terribly cynical people because we see everything in terms of incentives. And so those uh, people who work in the, the uh, job providers, uh, you know, they are, tend to be influenced by the incentives that are put to them in terms of the fee structures and the like. So, um, you know, I hope that there are some good stories about that. Um, but I also think that 
Um, you know, it can be pretty tough, I think, for people, um, and that's why I kind of think we need to sort of think these things through, that, um, you know, that suggestion, was it Kevin Andrews, please, um, was we were going to have, oh no, sorry, it was Eric, Eric, who suggested that, we, that people um, apply for 40 jobs per month. I mean, this is just a ridiculous idea. I'd prefer them to apply for one or two jobs properly and intensively and follow it up uh, because that's how you get a job, not by applying for 40 jobs. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of naivety out there. I mean, we obviously don't want, I mean, it's a horrible term actually, job snob. Uh, but I mean, you know, most of us accept that, you know, you don't start off as managing director of BHP, you have to kind of get, uh, get your foot in the door. But, you know, I think there are some issues about whether the, the um, job service provider network works as well as it can. Any other panellists want to respond to that or we should move to the no, next No, they don't question. know anything. Okay, number two. A <laughs> um, couple of things. It'll be a bit technical maybe, but the distribution of income is always less skewed than the distribution of capital and wealth. And I would have thought that class has got a lot to do with wealth rather than income. And yes, you're right. Um, we've done a pretty good job at redistribution of income transfers, although I'm not sure, Judith Sloan, that we haven't given the top income through superannuation. Okay. Um, pretty good transfers. I was not including tax concessions. Um, but the main thing is, and we've actually in Australia, I'd agree that we've done okay on the distribution of wealth, partly because coming back to Piketty's view, uh, we've had fairly good growth rates and haven't followed the European and the rest of the world. But now that the mining boom is over, if, our, if you follow Piketty and the rate of return ends up being greater than the growth rate, we're in for the return of the class system, are we not? Um, look, I, you know, I, I, I kind of follow this, probably no one else does, but um, I think the interesting thing about what you say is um, how important um, high rates of employment are and low rates of unemployment are. So what happened with the GFC, it did knock about the wealth of wealthy people. But they seem to have recovered, right? Even overseas, they seem to have recovered. But for those societies which have very high rates of unemployment, so in Spain, you've got 20% overall unemployment, 50% youth unemployment, uh, quite a lot of other European countries, high unemployment. This is absolutely devastating in terms of um, outcomes uh, in inequality, welfare, and of course, the future for uh, those people and their families. So I think you and I actually probably agree that one of the absolutely critical things is that we have a set of policies that will continue to keep unemployment relatively low. And I think it is a worry. I mean, I'm worried about the emerging youth unemployment issue. And the thing about youth unemployment, I go back to that issue of geography, is that there are some parts of the country, and Mark will know this about Western Sydney, but I certainly know there are parts of Melbourne and parts of Northern Adelaide, for example, where the rates of youth unemployment are already very high. And that, I think, is a real worry. Can I just say, I don't think the class system ever disappeared to then have to return. I think the class system has changed. But on your, point, on your point about how to best measure it, when Australia had a fairly closed, protected, static economy, 
You could have your snapshot indicators, you know, your bell curve, your Gini coefficient measurement of uh, income and wealth distribution, and that was a reasonably um, uh, reliable indicator of equality. But now the economy's open, much more dynamic. I think the best way of looking at the equality question is through mobility. You know, what chances there of someone uh, in the bottom 50% of society getting into the top 50%? How socially mobile are we? And the best indicator of that is education attainment, because you've got qualifications. Um, you know, you've got the new gold standard uh, behind you and you're, you're probably going to do well in, in the modern economy. And in 2012, the OECD did a report on comparative rates of education mobility uh, in its member nations, and Australia ranked 10th out of 27, um, which is not perfect, but uh, in the first half, 10th out of 27. And the odds of someone whose parents have low levels of education attainment in Australia reaching university were 47%, which was way ahead of New Zealand, 21%, Canada, 22 and the United States, 29 And we were even ahead of two Scandinavian countries, normally associated with higher levels of egalitarianism, uh, Norway and Finland. So at 47% at, at of uh, the prospects of someone whose parents have got low levels of education, you yourself can go on to university, um, it's not perfect, but it's, it's pretty good. And uh, I think that's the best way of looking at equality in Australia, not with a, a static snapshot of income distribution, but more look, deep, dr drilling into these indicators of social mobility, particularly in the education system. Uh, number three. Um, thank you. Um, my question is really addressed um, to the issue of this of the underclass. Um, my perspective is as a general practitioner in the Hunter Valley, where I've um, dealt with uh, this this class of people for some 25 years. Um, I follow on from the point made by another questioner about the chronic disability uh, pension, which. Uh, it's supposed to be reviewed by the disability services every three years. It is my impression over 25 years that very few of these patients, whether they've been cured or not, have a review from the public services. The second point is to do with the question earlier about truancy. I trained in, in Scotland. In Scotland, in Aberdeen, if a school truant was... This was recognised as a trigger as a, for potential psychiatric illness um, within families. And not only I mean, um, in the child, but also in the parents and extended family. A sign of social lack of support. Um, it's quite often my experience that children who are not Aboriginal, who are white, and do not attend school, there is not an adequate pickup of these patients to come to medical services and to psychiatric services, partly because the school counsellors have nowhere to send them. And there is a, still remains an, an enormous lack of mental health services for children throughout Australia, but certainly in the Hunter Valley. The Hunter Valley is, is an, an area very much like described by the panellists. I have truck drivers who earn more than some of the doctors who work in my practice. And yet we have still, in our area, a large underclass of people with the right psychiatric treatment could be attending school, achieving better educational outcomes, 
And certainly, once they are treated, they often become very reliable and grateful people. Okay, so sorry, I just need to... to we're, we're running out of time, so I just was wondering if you could just frame a question or were you just wanting the, the panel to respond? My question is, my point is that social policy uh, should also include, should not just be about social policy, the recognition that so-called so social problems should be recognised as wider medical problems and all stakeholders should be allowed the opportunity to recognise the, the, the solutions that can be available and to use other uh, government departments to actually have input and to have these problems fixed. Any response from the panel? I just, um, Mark Carnegie, did you have something to say? No, no, I mean, I'm yeah. back to this point, which is what are we doing in terms of <coughs> health and safety in the booming mining sector, the amount of money we spend on that compared to the, the amount of money we spend on mental health when suicide is a bigger killer than health yeah. and safety. Yeah. But, um, I mean, on that point about uh, disability support pensioners, I mean, w w we know from research, we know that basically very few people ever get off the disability support pension. They either move on to the age pension or die. And the thing is that, you know, we were talking about incentives. The thing is people, I think, notwithstanding what I think is a terrifically good logo for the Labor Party, the dignity of work, people understand that, but they're very fearful of going off the DSP because otherwise they may drop back to the very low form of, um, uh, of New Start and lose other benefits. So I feel, you know, I think there is an important um, discussion about the trap of welfare dependence, and you see that in the Aboriginal communities too, and uh, we just have to be brave enough to have that discussion. Um, I'm going to go to question four. I would ask, we've only got a couple of minutes, so please do make it a kind of a, a neat, concise question so we can get through as many as possible. Number four. Um, my concern is the returning inequality and the growth of the richer portion of Australia based on the resource industry and the exportation of our natural assets without value adding <coughs> to them. At the moment, I, I'm a geologist and I know these assets won't last forever and I worry that so rather than the class system and the inequality right now, what about in the future and how we're actually using these to, um, to build capital and to build systems, build infrastructure, public service things that'll um, grow the, the diminish inequality in the future. So um, Joe Hockey likes to talk about growing the pie, but I worry about when the flour runs out what are we going to eat? <laughs> so, cake, um, my cake. question... Cake, we're going to eat cake. <laughs> no, but you need... Mark Cuddy. Mark Cuddy, I'd you like flour. you to get to your respond to that. Yeah, like, I mean, I think you've got a really good point, which is it's another thing. These, these assets are national assets. The idea that you can peg them, drill three holes in the ground, and 97% of the economic rents go to you and only 3% goes to the nation, other than spillovers and trickle-down effect. Why can't we have a national debate upon that? I have no idea. Why is it that the mining tax was so extraordinarily easy for what was only 20 million bucks and they bought the election on the strength of turning that away and yet nobody can make the case that the mining tax wasn't a rational tax to levy on behalf of the nation. So I think you're absolutely right. 
why it is that voters love that, axe the tax, it's beyond me. Judith, do you have a quick response to that? <laughs> well, look, I think the, the broad point is we have to make sure, as, as uh, the mining boom phase, what is going to be the diversification of the Australian economy, which will continue to generate the jobs and the incomes. And that is also an important debate. I, I don't agree with you about the mining tax. It was an appallingly designed tax anyway. But maybe we should... We should um, We'll have Return a fight to about the debate. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we can have it back. So I've got, unfortunately, only 30 seconds, so I'm just going to go to number one. I apologise to the people who've been standing, but if you go and buy uh, the books in the signing, you can ask your questions. But number one. Okay, I'll make it quick. Um, I'll direct my question to Mark Carnegie. Um, you suggested that there is a, you know, amazing number of jobs out there waiting to be created. If you only you lower these regulations that clutter innovations, um, my understanding is that a lot of these regulations do exist for reasons and they probably, you know, could have prevented environmental disasters that some of which I can see in parts of America. So where's your red line? Where, what, what are some of the regulations that you, you think should be get rid of, so to speak? But so, yeah. Mark. So if we can just two different things, environmental regulation or health and safety regulation. And do you want one level of environmental regulation or two? Or what are you going to do in terms of how to find some way to not delay these projects in a situation where there is a foot race internationally? I'm very happy to have whatever environmental regulations the nation wants in terms of protections. But they need to find some way where it's one shot quick cycle so that what you don't do in every situation on the environmental thing is just be in a situation where we're short nickel, there's three projects in Australia, there's 30 around the world, we don't have the debate as a one shot, do we want to bring on some nickel capacity or do we want it to go somewhere else in the world? We get the whole thing about the mining boom is that ended up being a situation where just for a whole series of reasons, very, very quickly, we ended up being able to capture the LNG opportunity. We would have no chance competing in that industry against the Americans at the moment. A whole lot of people in the audience will absolutely hate that, but the truth is a huge amount of Australian GDP for the next 20 years will come just through happenstance and just through the fact that that particular thing went through a narrow economic window. The second point is, you know, as sure as I'm sitting here, the health and safety regulation is absolutely metastatic. When you look at any of what that does to slow processes down compared to actually what it was meant to do at the beginning, which was stop a whole lot of 18 to 30-year-old guys running people over or taking pieces of industrial machinery and killing people with them, which was completely and utterly sane. But the idea that you're paying somebody 180,000 bucks to open the lunchroom and shut the lunchroom on building sites across Australia because of the health and safety occurring that they might boil themselves, you know, with the thing they boil tea with or the toaster, you think that's sane? Um, I'd, like you, I'd like you to continue to clap and thank our panellists for this afternoon. Judith Sloan, Mark Carnegie, Mark Latham.